Generation Church, based in the beautiful Rex Theater in the heart of downtown Pensacola, Florida. Our hope is that today's teaching will encourage and equip you to be firm in faith, to fulfill the call of God in your life, and to finish well. Grab your Bible, open up your notes app, and let's dive in. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of reverence and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, and that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of God. Thank you, Josh, for reading the word this morning. Welcome, everybody. How are we doing? Good. Wasn't baptism awesome? That's so cool. I love, love watching people profess their faith in Jesus in that way. It's really obedience to what God calls us to do. He calls us to be baptized, and so that's a really awesome thing to take part of this morning. Uh, we're in this series of Ephesians. I have the privilege of finishing out chapter one of this letter that Paul wrote to the Gentile Christians in Ephesus. Ephesians is sometimes called the Grand Canyon of the New Testament because of its depth and beauty, and I, I really enjoy this letter a lot. <clears throat> Paul wrote this letter to Gentile Christians, as I said, and it was likely a circular letter that would have been shared in house churches around the area. So maybe not exactly to just Ephesus, but for all the people in the area. And by the grace of God and by his um, preservation of his word, we can learn for and receive from this letter as well. This is our house church here at Generation, and we get to unpack this letter that the apostle wrote Two weeks ago, Pastor Luis gave us a phenomenal overview of the occasion and the audience for this letter, and he unpacked the necessity for us to know and understand how it applies to us today. And by the grace of God, we can be empowered and we can be enlightened by his Holy Spirit to understand how the words of Paul apply to us. And so Paul opens his letter writing in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. In this verse, we see a little bit of the geography of the letter to the Ephesians. You see, because they are in Ephesus and they are in Christ. You could, in a way, read to the saints who are in Pensacola at Generation Church because it applies to us as well. Your passport may read Pensacola or the United States of America, but in reality, you have dual citizenship. In fact, your address is not your home. Your country of origin is not the United States or France or Romania or Germany or anywhere else. No, your address is 
and destination is heaven. Because in verse 3, Paul uses this key verse for the entire letter. And he says that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's our address and our destination. And so I want to kind of start out just by telling you this quick story that's it's kind of a sad story, but I think it highlights something that we need to consider as we're unpacking this letter and, and this passage of Scripture this morning. There was a man who was a drunkard and lived many years in the streets, and one night he went to a mission where he listened to the message, he ate the meal, and he went to sleep on one of the cots. But sadly, he passed away that night, poor and alone. What he didn't realize was that he had a $4 million inheritance waiting for him, but because he had no address, the authorities were unable to find them. And so he had this access to all the wealth he could ever want or need, but he lived and died in poverty. And the reason I'm sharing this is because so often as Christians, we live lives of spiritual poverty because we're unaware of the riches that we have been given in Christ. And so Pastor Taylor, last week, he mentioned some of these blessings that we have. God chose us to be holy and blameless. He predestined us as sons and daughters for adoption. He redeemed us, forgiving our sins through the blood of Jesus. He sealed us with the Holy Spirit through faith, and he gave us an inheritance of eternal Life. And so as we're looking at this letter, in the first three chapters, Paul is presenting things that we should know about God. And then in chapters four through six, Paul is shifting focus from what we should know about God to how we should live out these truths of the knowledge that he so graciously gives us. And now this prayer in Ephesians is one of two prayers that the Apostle Paul prays in the letter. And both of these prayers are high up on my list of favorite passages of Scripture. In fact, I would say that these two prayers are in my top five of all passages of Scripture. I think they're just so beautifully written and prayed and really gets to the point of what we need to know about God and the power available by the Spirit to live these truths out. So Paul in our passage this morning, he's praying for enlightenment to know God in his every spiritual blessing, and then later he's praying for enablement to live this life with power. In this letter, Paul presents us with doctrine and duty, riches and responsibility. So there's a part that God does, and there's a part that we have to do, and Paul tells us that it's a sign of maturity when we grasp these truths and then live them out. Warren Wearsby, a Bible commentator, says this in his outline on Ephesians, Christians mature in the Lord when they learn how much they mean to Christ and then start living to bring joy to his heart. And so I really believe that the main point of Paul's prayer is something like this. We need a deeper and more complete knowledge of God's riches available to us in Christ so that we can live powerful lives of faith in Jesus and love toward God's people. And so with that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll continue on with our passage for today. Lord God, I thank you this morning that we can gather in your name, and we can worship you, and we can receive the truth of your word. I ask God that by your spirit, the eyes of our heart would be enlightened so that we would know you, and that 
by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live out these truths. Thank you again for your son, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice and for sending the Spirit to empower us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And so in verse 15, we start our passage for this morning. Paul says, For this reason, because I I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That phrase, for this reason, is pointing back to what we covered last week in the previous passage, but also looking forward at their love and their faith. Because of the many spiritual blessings God has given us, Paul thanks God and prays for them because they love each other and they have faith in Jesus. If you remember from the first week in this series, we learned that Paul spent about three years in Ephesus with the, with the Ephesians. And so he really had a deep love for and care for these people. And it was such a connection that every time he remembered them, he thought good thoughts about them and he prayed to God and gave thanks. Did you notice that Paul called them saints? I just want to kind of highlight something here because if you believe in Jesus Christ, then you are a saint. A saint isn't a title that's given by religious decree, but it's a name given through a relationship with Jesus. And so if you are a believer, if you are a child of God, then you're not a sinner saved by grace. You were a sinner, but now you're a saint that has been saved according to the riches of God's grace, and your sins have been forgiven. And so in verse 17, we then come to the substance of Paul's prayer. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul prayed for better spiritual vision. And here's the beautiful thing. The spirit of wisdom and revelation has already been given. It's one of the many blessings that we have in Christ. But what Paul is doing is he's praying for increase, for a deeper and more complete understanding by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's really drawing from an Old Testament passage here to show us that we have the same spirit of Christ that's mentioned in Isaiah 11, verse 2. It says... My screen keeps locking. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The riches of Jesus are available to us by the Holy Spirit, who gives us wisdom to perceive the mysteries in the Word of God. And so in verse 18, Paul uses that interesting phrase, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. He's using a metaphor to show that we need more than to simply see with our physical eyes or perceive with our minds. I like how the New Living Translation renders it. It says, I pray that your hearts would be flooded with light so that you can understand. And so with that kind of imagery in mind, I see enlightenment as illuminated, as if the Holy Spirit is giving us a light bulb moment. But actually, it's more like the Holy Spirit is a spotlight that's pointing us to Jesus. So Paul is kind of telling us that our inability to see the mysteries of God is not a fault of our physical eyes or of our intellect, but it's a problem of our heart. 
And so we need the Holy Spirit to enlighten our hearts so that we can understand these riches that we have in Christ. Pastor Taylor mentioned something last week, kind of in passing. I think it may have been only in the second service, but he was talking about how he was reading in Luke chapter 8 how Jesus was explaining to the disciples the reason he taught in parables. And I want to look at Matthew chapter 13, the parallel passage to Luke 8. In verses 11 through 13, Jesus says, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And so you see, if you believe in Jesus, if you're one of his disciples, then it has been given to you to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, and more will be given. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. It's an ever-creasing, deeper, more complete knowledge that Jesus promised us and Paul prayed for. And we can receive that this morning by the Holy Spirit, who is blessing us with wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. So in light of this, Paul prays specifically for four things that we might know. First, Paul prays that they might know God. It said, that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And so just as Paul prayed for better spiritual vision, Paul prayed for better knowledge of God. Knowledge of God really should be our highest goal. In, in Ephesians, Paul is outlining the greatness of God's character and will, his incomparable grace and Love and the Holy Spirit enlightens our heart to know God in this way. Philosophy and culture, on the other hand, it tells us to know yourselves, right? Where has that gotten us in Western culture, this pursuit of knowing ourselves? Nowhere, right? We're, we're unable to answer basic questions anymore, it seems. As a culture, we're lost in the labyrinth, so to speak, of knowing ourselves, what we really need is knowledge of God our Father. We need knowledge that's higher than ourselves. We need hearts enlightened to better know God. And it makes me think of what Jesus had to say about knowledge of God. He said in John 17, verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Warren Wearsby points out three ways we can know God. We can know him personally through salvation. We can know him increasingly through sanctification, which is the process where the Holy Spirit empowers us to be more and more like Jesus. And we can know him perfectly through glorification at the return of Jesus when we will be made fully in his image and we will live with God forever. And so you see, our future is dependent upon what we know about God. And so if you know him through his son, Jesus, then you have this inheritance of eternal life. If you don't know him, I pray that this morning the Spirit would give you wisdom and revelation of God so that you may experience these riches that we have available in Jesus. And so first, Paul prays that they might know God. And second, Paul prays that they might know the hope of his call. In the first part of 18, Paul writes, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which 
he has called you. Now, I want to harp on the, this word hope a little bit because Christian hope isn't hope so, as in, man, I hope it all works out. I hope I get to heaven. I hope that promotion comes through, or I hope I win the lottery. It's not that at all. Christian hope is confident assurance that God is going to do what he promised he will do. And so the scripture is full of God's faithfulness. And so if you want this kind of hope that we have, I encourage you to get into the word of God because there you can discover with the help of the Holy Spirit, the hope of his call. And so you might be thinking to yourself, well, what hope has he called me to? Well, I want to use a few examples from this letter to the Ephesians to kind of give us a little bit of insight of what this hope we've been called to looks like. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We're called to walk in holiness. Yes, our sins are forgiven like Pastor Luis was talking about a short time ago. In fact, they're forgotten, but the Holy Spirit is still at work in us to make us more like Jesus. The old self is gone, yes. The new self is here, yes, but there's work that needs to go through. We have this process we need to go through of sanctification where we're denying our old selves, and we're living for the call of Christ. Or how about Ephesians 2.10? It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're called to work, walk in the good works God prepared in advance for us. Now we'll see in Ephesians chapter 2 that we're not saved by works, we're saved for works. Because we're not saved by our works, but because of the work of Jesus. But, you see, good works are a natural byproduct of a supernatural work of God. Because the works that we do follow the wealth that we've been given in Jesus Christ. And so I want to give one more example of the call of God on our lives. Ephesians 4 verse 1, Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We're called to walk in obedience to God's word. And how are we going to do that if we're not reading the word to know what it says, to know what God is calling us to? So again, I encourage you to get in the word so that you can understand the need to walk in obedience. So third, after Paul prays that they might know the hope of his call, Paul prayed that they might know the riches of his inheritance. It says that we may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul uses the word rich or riches six times in Ephesians. And so in Ephesians 1 verse 7, we see the riches of God's grace. Here in verse 18, the riches of his inheritance. In Ephesians 2 verse 4, we see that God is rich in mercy. And in 2, 7 and 3, 8, we see that his riches are immeasurable and unsearchable. They are the riches of his glory, Ephesians 3, 16. And so as we learned last week, one of the riches that we have in Christ is an inheritance. And our inheritance is eternal life in the presence of our Lord. John chapter 14, Jesus is using a metaphor of a mansion to explain to his disciples that he's going away to prepare a place for them in one of the many rooms available in the Father's house. 
We learned last week that the Holy Spirit is the down payment on our mansion in heaven because he has sealed us as a guarantee until we take possession of it. So we have our inheritance in Christ. But verse 18 here absolutely blows my mind because it's talking about God's glorious inheritance in us. His glorious inheritance in the saints. Think of the price that God paid to give us the riches we have in Christ. Usually, to receive an inheritance, someone has to die, right? That's how it happens most often. Well, that's exactly what happened. God gave his only son to do just that. Jesus gave his life so that we could inherit eternal life. And so we see in many places in the Old Testament where Israel is called the inheritance of God, but because we have been adopted into the family as daughters and sons of Jesus Christ, we too are the inheritance of God. God paid an immeasurable price for each one of us, and by his spirit, he's investing in our sanctification. He's investing in this process where we become more and more like his son, Jesus. And the beautiful thing is when Jesus returns, God is going to gather the interest of his investment in us when we're glorified finally, fully in his image. He will receive the investment he made in us to the praise of his glory. I hope that we can come to greater understanding of the riches of his inheritance. It almost doesn't make sense to me, but the word of God says that we are the inheritance of God. So finally, Paul prays that they might know the greatness of his power. Verse 19, that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. We learned in our last sermon series some of the attributes of God, and one of those attributes is his omnipotence, meaning he is all-powerful. And so I love how Paul is stacking synonyms in this verse in an effort to, to grasp the immeasurable nature of God's power. And so we see four words that, that Paul uses to describe his power. The first one is the word power. God's power is towards us and is at work in us. And by his power, he created us and he sustains us. But more than that, he created all things and he sustains all things. Paul uses the word working. God's power is actively working in our lives by the Holy Spirit. He uses the word great. This word means power that overcomes resistance. This word is only used of God, and it's the power through which he performs miracles on our behalf. Paul uses the word might. God's power gives us strength to resist temptation and walk in obedience. Because God's power is a saving power, and God's power is a sanctifying power, and without God's power, we can't access our riches in Christ. And so I came across this sobering thought that Warren Wearsby said. He said, the greatest power shortage today is not in our generators or our gas tanks. It is in our personal lives. We have access to un untold power, but so often we fail to hook up. To plug in. We need to have a deeper, more complete knowledge of the power of God at work in our lives 
to fully benefit from the riches we have in Christ because without his power, we can't access his riches. We can't access the wealth that he has unless we're connected to him. And so Paul, he then continues to show how God's power is demonstrated. It's demonstrated when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, which was far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. When God raised Jesus from the dead, it was a display of his power. When he seated Christ at his right hand, it was a display of his power. And at the right hand of God, it's a position of favor, honor, and authority. And so God placed Jesus Christ in authority above all things by his power. And it says that the greatness of God's power and the authority of Jesus Christ is far above all. And then Paul stacks these metaphors for power. He uses rule, authority, power, and dominion to say that Jesus sits above every conceivable form of power. And he is above every name. He's above the name of depression. He's above the name of sickness. He's above the name of division. He's above race and nationality. He's above people groups. He's above countries. Anything and, any, and, and everything that can be named, Jesus sits far above that. Not just in Paul's day, but our day now and into eternity, Jesus Christ is seated far above all. There was a, a priest in the Church of England at the turn of the 20th century named Armitage Robinson, and he said this so well about this verse. He said, Above all that anywhere is, anywhere can be, above all grades of dignity, real or imagined, good or evil, present or to come, the mighty power of God has exalted and enthroned the Christ. The power of God has seated Jesus far above what? All. He is far above. And then Paul closes with a picture of Jesus' position and the relationship between Christ and his church. Ephesians 1 verse 22, Paul says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Under his feet is another metaphor that Paul is using to describe Christ's authority and control over all things. For his enemy, it's a picture of a conquering king with his neck, with his foot on the neck of his defeated foes. But for his disciples, for his children, it's a picture of us sitting reverently at the feet of our Lord. Paul also uses the metaphor of a head and body relationship. You can't have a head without a body, and a body is pretty much useless without a head, right? The body and head are intimately, vitally connected, and it's a living connection. And the beautiful thing is that as Christians, we are all members of his body. We are the hands and the feet of Jesus, and we all work together to bring him glory. Paul then says something that's sort of shocking and unbelievable. He says that the church is the fullness of Christ and that Christ fills everything. 
And so one way that commentators describe this is that Jesus fills the church with blessings. And I believe that, but I think there's something more to it. Other Bible commentators will describe a mutual filling that happens because you see the head and body, Christ, and the church, they complement and they complete each other. John Calvin perhaps captured the essence of this verse more than anyone else I've come across. He says this about the head and body relationship of Christ to the church. He says, This is the highest honor of the church, that unless he is united to us, the Son of God reckons himself in some measure imperfect. What an encouragement it is for us to hear that not until he has us as one with himself is he complete in all his parts, or does he wish to be regarded as whole. And as we'll see in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul uses another metaphor of a bridegroom and a bride to describe this loving relationship between Christ and the church. And what he's doing there is he's quoting from Genesis 2, verse 24, where it says, A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's, he then applies this verse to Christ and the church, becoming one together. It's almost impossible to grasp how much the church means to Jesus. Paul calls it a profound mystery. It's one of the few profound mysteries that Paul outlines. We'll see another one in Ephesians chapter 3. But what Paul is getting at here is that we can perceive these mysteries through the Holy Spirit who brings revelation to us. May he enlighten the eyes of our hearts to know how blessed we are as members of the body of Christ. Because just as God is investing in our sanctification and at the end of time when Christ returns, he will receive us in glory to his honor and his glory. He does the same thing for the church. As we work together, he is building us up into the beautiful bride that Christ redeemed. That's what it means for the church to be the fullness of Christ and for Christ to fill all in all. Is in some measure, Jesus Christ is waiting for that precious day when he can finally bring his bride to live with him in eternity. And so with that in mind, I want us to return to the beginning of our passage today, where in verse 15, Paul said, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I want to point out here what I think are two characteristics of Christians. You could say that these are the signs of a saint, faith and love. Notice that Paul isn't thanking God for their faith in Jesus, but for their love for the saints. Because faith is our vertical relationship between us and God, and love is our horizontal relationship with others. The two are inseparable, though. If you have faith in Jesus, the natural outpouring is love toward others. And so as, as we gain knowledge of God, as we gain knowledge of his call, and as we gain knowledge of his inheritance and his power, and as we begin to understand how much the church means to Christ, we will start to display these characteristics of faith and love more and more. I know that I want to be like the example that Paul is setting for us here, where when he thinks about these Christians, their thoughts of love, 
And when he sees faith in them, he gives God thanks for them. So we should be exactly like that. Where we see faith, we should give thanks. And where we see other Christians, we should be moved to love them as Jesus loves the church. And here's why it matters. Because love of others is evidence for love of God. Isn't it interesting that Paul didn't thank God for their love of Jesus? He thanked them for the love of all the saints. Because their love for God is implied in their love for others. Like I said, it's inseparable. And they, they had love for all the saints. Is that something that we can say about ourselves? Do we love all God's people how we're called to? Sometimes I don't know if, if I do that, if I love how I should. Clergyman Jonathan Swift observed, we have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. That's a harsh reality that I think is all too often true in the church, and it ought not be. Where we see faith, we should give thanks. And when we think of other Christians, it should be love, because we can so easily categorize people into different kinds of Christians. Or we can rationalize criticizing certain behaviors or sins to justify keeping people at arm's reach. Of course, all without reflecting on our own shortcomings, right? It's always someone else has the problem, and I don't want to deal with that. Instead, we should be more like the Ephesians where we demonstrate our faith in Jesus and our love for him by loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of these reasons that we come up within our minds. The kind of love that's used here is agape love. The, this Greek love, agape, it's God's love. It's a love that's self-sacrificing love for the benefit of, of others, and it's a love that is without conditions. We love because we're called to love. We love because God love, loves us. And the second reason why it matters is that love of others is a sign of maturity. When we mature in Christ, our love for others grows. And as we'll see in Ephesians 4, we start to see when we shift from riches to responsibility or from doctrine to duty, we start to see this call to maturity. In Ephesians 4, verse 15, Paul says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up, in every way, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, that's all of us working together, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so as members of the body of Christ, we are all together, and we all join together and partner with each other and show love to each other to work together, to love, and build each other up. So what the Ephesian Christians modeled for us is obedience to Jesus' command to love. In John 13, verse 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so as the band comes up and I begin to close, I want to tell you that here at Generation Church, we want to partner with you and provide opportunities for you to grow and to serve. One way that you can grow is to get plugged in to the life of this church. And one of the best ways to do that is to join a small group. 
And in two short weeks, we'll be starting our small group semester. So I really encourage you to join a group and get plugged into what's going on. It's a way where, as Scripture says, iron can sharpen iron. And it's a way where we can help love on each other, get each other through hard times, learn from Scripture how we are to live our lives. And one opportunity that we have to serve, as we mentioned, is joining the crew. It's a place where you can be involved with everything that's going on at Generation on a Sunday or during the week. And another opportunity that we have to serve is our Love One Another ministry. This is a practical way that we've, we've put together where we can help people in this church right here at Generation with things that they're struggling with, whether it be basic necessities or unexpected hardships. It's a way that we can practically love one another. The number one way that you can support this ministry is through your prayer because we believe that through prayer, God will answer and meet all the needs that come up in this church, this body that we've built together, this family that we have. God will provide for every need. Now, often these needs are financial, but we don't trust in money. We trust in God. He's the one who provides for us. And so I I know a lot of times it's hard when you hear of opportunities like this. You think, okay, another opportunity to write a check, you know. But I want us to think outside of the box a little bit because there's practical ways that we can love one another that don't just involve giving another $10, you know. Um, some few, few things that I thought about is maybe there's someone who needs groceries or clothing and you can donate for that. Or maybe it's in your, in your vocation. Maybe you're a mechanic and you can do small car repairs for people. Help maybe even teach people how to repair their vehicle themselves. Or maybe you're a lawyer or work in law in some capacity and you can give legal advice or maybe financial counseling, or maybe you just have wisdom for common issues that we all face that you can speak into people's lives and help them navigate some of these issues. Or maybe you're just a strapping young lad or lady and you wouldn't mind doing some manual labor like yard work or uh, trimming hedges or something like that. Or helping people move. These are just practical things. Maybe it's just offering your time to drive somebody to a doctor's appointment. Like, if we can all think of ways outside of the box that we can love one another, I think we can really, really put into practice what I think Paul is getting at here, where we are the body of Christ showing faith and love. And so if you're interested in getting plugged into this ministry, just write love one another on a connect card with your contact information and turn it into one of the connect boxes in the building and we'll reach out to you. And as I said, the easiest, best way you can help is through prayer. So whenever you see faith and whenever you think of people in Generation Church, when you think of other believers, pray for them. So I hope you've been encouraged this morning. I know I have as I've been studying through Ephesians. And I'm looking forward to the coming weeks where we'll continue unpacking this grand canyon of the New Testament. I want to join the Apostle Paul in praying that we would all have the eyes of our hearts enlightened by the Holy Spirit so that we can have a deeper and more complete knowledge of God's riches available to us in Christ so that we may live powerful lives of faith in Jesus and love towards God's people. May we walk in faith and love this week. Let's pray. 
Lord God, I thank you again for this time we've had this morning. I pray that your word would find good soil in our hearts and that your spirit would make us more like Jesus. Help us to have this sort of faith and this sort of love that you call us to. Holy Spirit, enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may know God more deeply and that we may know all of these glorious riches he's given us by his grace and by faith in his son, Jesus. We love you, Lord. Jesus, we love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for hanging out with us at Generation. You can connect with us on Facebook or Instagram at Generation Pensacola or go to the website at generationpensacola.com and from wherever you download your podcasts. If today's teaching impacted you, we'd love to hear about it. So please drop us a note.